The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Years after the Civil War, Jefferson Davis wrote of the importance of gathering historical materials so that future historians could, quote, do justice to our cause and conduct and persuade future generations to render a favorable verdict on the Confederacy. Walter Linwood Fleming tried to do just that in 1905 with his book, Civil War and Reconstruction in Alabama. No other book has directly addressed the history of Alabama in the Civil War until Civil War Alabama in 2016 by Christopher Lyle McElwain Sr., whose verdict on Confederate Alabama, Alabama isn't quite what Jefferson Davis had in mind. We'll find out more from the author tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you today from the Civil War Talk Radio Field Headquarters, stationed this evening in Beckley, West Virginia, at the Country Inn and Suites, but not speaking for the Country Inn and Suites, or for the Beckley Chamber of Commerce, or West Virginia, or for that matter for East Carolina University, where the show normally comes from, and where I have my daytime employment. 
<clears throat> rather speaking just for myself and my guest will certainly do the same this show is coming to you on the road as we did a few weeks ago from uh, en route to Chattanooga for the Civil War uh, Society of Civil War Historians Conference and now I'm once again in a hotel room using the miracle of modern technology the next book the hundred dollar Walmart knockoff version of the Microsoft Surface it's not as good as the Surface but you can buy ten of them for the same price and discard them as they break and uh, uh, using the, the microphone and all the other tools, the headphones, and able to broadcast from almost anywhere, almost from anywhere. There's this this room is a nice room. Uh, Country Inn and Suites is not a paying sponsor of the show. I won't say any more about that. But I've never stayed in a room with a whirlpool tub before. This one has one, and it's not just like in the bathroom, but it's right out there. It's like, like I guess this is the honeymoon suite apparently. Uh, so there's a tub right out there near the bed. My wife suggested I do the show from the tub itself. Uh, so I will leave it to your imaginations whether this is the first Civil War talk radio nautical episode broadcast from a foaming whirlpool tub uh, or not. I'm on the road because coming home from a wonderful visit to the uh, birthplace of me, uh, Detroit, Michigan, to see Civil War Talk Radio's number one fan, my mom, who listens live every night, every week, uh, even during baseball season when the show competes with Tiger Baseball, and uh, even throughout the year when the show competes with Wheel of Fortune uh, broadcast at 7 o'clock, she still always listens live, lets me know how I'm doing for that and for everything else mom uh, cannot thank you enough it was a wonderful visit and look forward to getting back soon the visit was also part of a trip to see old college friends uh, Mike, Eric and Pete out in Massachusetts where Pete lives we stayed at his place we talked incessantly we played extremely entertaining golf uh, I've known these guys since starting at the University of Michigan in 1976 and the one observation I want to make is, wow, have they gotten older. They have really aged, those three. Uh, somehow I have remained exactly the same, which I'm very encouraged by. Well, this is our last show of the year. Normally at this time I tell you who's going to be on the show next week, uh, but it's time for the summer hiatus, time to recharge the batteries, read new books meet new people, get the shows ready for the fall. And we do have some excellent shows coming up. Just one to, to get you started on August 31st, Gary Edelman of the Civil War Trust will be joining us. Lots of interesting things to say there about his work as a Civil War historian and also the preservation work of the Civil War Trust. So that's August 31st. There are a lot of other shows lined up, but we'll, you can look for those at some point over the summer on, as always, www.impedimentsofwar.org, the Civil War Talk Radio Companion website, where you can find out who's going to be on, what they're going to talk about, what books they've written, and where you can buy the books. Click on the links on that website, takes you to Amazon, you buy the book there, and the pass-through, the click-through provides some funding for 
impedimentsofwar.org, which otherwise is a labor of love for Mark Gaffney, who's done yeoman work over the many seasons of the show, producing that, that excellent website. You can also find the PayPal button on the website where you can donate directly to Civil War Talk Radio. Your funds are used to buy books that are discussed on the show or to rent hotel rooms with whirlpool tubs in them. There's no accounting for where your money will go. It's not tax deductible. Don't try to deduct it. It's, it's just a donation. Well, let's move to the show and talk about the uh, the book Civil War Alabama by Christopher Lyle McElwain Sr. This is a book that I, when I first had it pitched here at Civil War Talk Radio, I was a bit apprehensive, uh, fearing that uh, a book on a specific state might tend to be uh, filio-pietistic, might be uh, about one's ancestors and how great they were. But it is safe to say that the Sons of Confederate Veterans will not be erecting a statue for Mr. McElwain in the near future. Uh, so let's find out why. Uh, Mr. McElwain, are you there? Gary, how are you today? There it is. I'm good. Thank you for joining me on the show. Good. Your mother must be proud of it. University of Michigan, Harvard, well, a lawyer, a history professor, a radio show, and now a hot tub. And the hot tub, and uh, I'm glad you mentioned Harvard there because some some people listening to the show are just waiting to find out uh, when the Harvard mention will come in, and we got it taken care of right away. Yes, I went there, uh, and now the hot tub. It, it really did, just keeps getting better. Absolutely. Uh, well, tell me uh, t- tell me something about your uh, background. I, you, I, I know you worked on this book for many many years. You've uh, worked with Guy Hobbs uh, at Auburn, I believe. But uh, where, where uh, how did you get interested in the Civil War, and, and, and what brought you to write this book? Good. Uh, let me just first say, Guy Hobbs is, is a professor at uh, Birmingham Southern College. Uh, That's right. I'm sorry. Where, where I came to this, uh, many years ago, I... Uh, just as kind of a, a lark, began reading some things on Reconstruction and, uh, you know, was, became interested in that, was planning to write a short article for our legal journal here in Alabama about the Reconstruction era, Alabama Supreme Courts. Of course, there were two of them, uh, two different types, obviously. And it's very difficult to understand why things happened the way they did. So I had to kind of go in reverse, look at the Civil War. There were some things that, at least in the, in the secondary literature, that included uh, Professor Fleming's book that some of it didn't make sense, wasn't logical. And so I began basically reading backwards. I looked at the 1850s and then decided, well, heck, I'm just going to go from the very beginning of the state to try to figure out how in the world we got where we were there uh, in Reconstruction and even even now. And so, uh, you know, after writing 2,500 pages, 
and being told by Guy Hubs and, and others uh, that uh, nobody was going to publish something that long, I decided to break out and write really the first full book on the Civil War in Alabama. Uh, Professor Fleming's section on the Civil War is actually merely a, a very extended introduction to his work on Reconstruction. As you probably know, he was a member, he was of the Dunning School and uh, was, was the one that was tasked to write about Reconstruction in Alabama. Uh, and so he really wasn't intending to write the full breadth of the Civil War. And I don't think he would have really wanted to anyway, because uh, especially if he was going to write a warts and all uh, expose, uh, he would not have any monuments built to him either. But uh, so I, I decided to go ahead and write one, and uh, it was really kind of a labor of love. And, and also, you know, I, as you know, I'm an attorney uh, in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, mm-hmm. and I'm a litigator. And as you well know, what litigators do uh, most of the time is trying to figure out what happened at some point in the past, whether it was a car wreck or a commercial transaction that went bad or some other thing. And so the way I figured it, if I can figure out what happened 150 years ago, uh, I think I can do a pretty good job of something that happened 10 years ago or five years ago. So it was it was also an intellectual exercise and uh, that I really enjoyed. And I learned a lot about uh, the the South and uh, the Confederate period in in the South, and in particular in Alabama, that I think most people didn't know, uh, and that was again because no one had ever written about it, at least as it applied to Alabama. So many people out there assume that the uh, shape of things was in, in all of the southern states was kind of like it was in Virginia. Uh, in terms of the war, uh, the the feelings, the the emotions, that sort of thing, that's really not true. Uh, each state had its own, in my judgment, had its own take on what was going on, and uh, geography had a lot to do with that. But but also, you know, the people in the states away from the coast uh, are, are quite a bit different than the ones that stayed near the eastern seaboard. So that's kind of how I got into it. Well, that's one of the themes that appears throughout the book, certainly the early part, is the importance of sectionalism within the state, uh, that North Alabama and the central part of the state and the coast are are different uh, culturally, politically, economically. And this certainly shows up in your early chapters where you talk about secession, the, uh, the, the view that was popularized uh, in the Lost Cause myth is that every white southerner rallied to the Bonnie Blue flag and they were all for secession. And you suggest that was far from the case in Alabama. Clearly, I don't think it was actually true in any state. Um, you know, if, if that were the case, then the Confederacy would not have had to adopt conscription. Uh, you know, in Alabama, for example, 
before conscription, only about 25% of the military-age men enlisted. And, of course, after Shiloh, uh, a lot of people weren't going to enlist. They might have been thinking about it, but then they didn't have any choice when conscription was adopted. And I think the Confederacy also realized that there was significant dissent still uh, after that, and uh, that's why uh, the Confederacy adopted the two acts that I, I discuss in the book, uh, in one of the chapters in the book, allowing for confiscation of property of, of the disloyal, and also banishment if one uh, refused to take an oath of allegiance to the Confederacy. Why do you need those things if everybody's on board? Uh, and I think if you look in every state, there is, there is evidence of uh, dissent. Some of it is, is subtle, some of it is not. You know, we're waiting on this movie to come out about the free state of Jones uh, here mm-hmm. in the next uh, couple of weeks. A lot of people in the Civil War community are talking about it. But that really wasn't unique. Uh, we, had a, we had a county here in the state of Alabama that, you know, the, the legend is, is that they voted to secede from uh, the state of Alabama when Alabama seceded. It's not exactly true. makes a good story. But what they did do up there was adopt resolutions saying that they were going to remain uh, basically ambivalent. They were uh, going to be neutral throughout the conflict. Of course, when conscription was adopted, that forced the hands of a lot of people. And so you had uh, people getting out of the state. Some folks were joining the federal uh, army. Uh, some, some folks were going to, in South Alabama, were going to Pensacola, or they were going to Europe. So, you, you know, it's, it's really a, a very complicated thing in Alabama but it really is in other states as well. It's just, for whatever reason, uh, authors in the South have, have tended to avoid uh, discussing these warts on well, that, uh, the uh, courage of the state. You know, after the war, years after the war, there was a, you know, a, a, a desire to prove that everyone uh, supported the Confederacy and everyone was together and that sort of thing. And there were political reasons for that. Exactly. You- we're we're going to step in and take a short break now, come back and talk more about Alabama, its divisions within the state, as well as its participation in the Civil War, with our guest, Chris McElwain. He's the author of Civil War Alabama. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. 
The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking today with Christopher Lyle McElwain, Sr. He's the author of Civil War Alabama, published by the University of Alabama Press. It is a fascinating look at the politics uh, within one of the states of the Confederacy, a, uh, a, an analysis that clearly belies the lost cause image of every white Southerner uh, pulling together on behalf of the Confederacy. We talked a little bit about that in the first segment. Um, Chris, if I can return to the uh, uh, question, you, the question about secession, uh, you present the arguments between uh, uh, those who want to secede, those who don't, uh, those who don't want to secede because they want to protect slavery, and those who favor the Union. You also talk uh, later about those who serve and those who don't serve in the military. And in a number of cases, it seems your argument is based on on economic or class divisions. Uh, uh, You have a reference to the the buttermilk cavalry, for example, uh, guys who uh, serve in some kind of militia cavalry that just scavenges for food but doesn't do any fighting. Did you see in your research that that uh, financial differences, economic differences, made uh, separated how people felt about secession and war? Not really, actually. Um, I think that's a common assumption that economics played a, a a pivotal role in how someone felt about it. But I I think in order to really analyze that, you've got to look at what actually caused secession. Um, mm-hmm. I, think, I think I point out in the book that, um, you know, John Brown's raid, certainly as far as Alabama is concerned, and I suspect the rest of the southern states, uh, caused great fear uh, in the south of, of slave insurrections. I think everybody that's a historian is familiar with the story about St. Domingue or St. Domingo, uh, several mm-hmm. different pronunciations of it back in the 1790s where, you know, the, the slaves revolted and uh, murdered uh, the, 
basically the entire white population that didn't get off the island in time. And, you know, the, the folks in the South were scared to death that this was going to happen again. Uh, they were also, though, uh, very attracted to the profits that could be made from the cotton trade. So, you know, there was a dilemma there. You know, the, the, the reward is, is the money you make from cotton, the, um, but there, there's a, a risk of getting killed in the process. Uh, and so, you know, but that, that tension is there throughout the antebellum period. John Brown's raid really brought the fear factor to the forefront. Kind of like, you know, today with the, the issue of, of terrorism and that sort of thing. Um, great, there's great fear out there. Uh, the, the folks uh, today uh, argue about what to do about it, and they did back then. Uh, mm-hmm. To me, fear was, the, was the, really the, the device, the most decisive factor in all of this. And, uh, you know, that a lot of people believe that slavery, even non-slaveholders, which, which uh, represented two-thirds of the families in Alabama, uh, didn't own slaves. They were fearful that the over 435,000 slaves in Alabama would one day uh, rise up and, uh, you know, cause bloodshed. So uh, when when Brown did that, uh, everybody believed something needed to be done. But you had uh, folks who were very wealthy. Uh, For example, one one man named Robert Jemison here in Tuscaloosa uh, was one of the largest slaveholders in the state. He was very much opposed to secession. Uh, and uh, the reason was is because they believed that slavery was necessary to prevent insurrections. That may sound illogical, but that's the way they felt. And uh, they, they also believed that, uh, you know, if... if, if secession occurred, there would be a war, that that too could be a stimulus for a a slave insurrection. So it's really not just uh, poor people uh, or the lower socioeconomic uh, class of folks that were opposed to secession. You had a tremendous number of slave owners that were opposed to secession. A lot of the, uh, and they were opposed to war. Uh, the, 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 The cavalry unit that you refer to is is from North Alabama. Most of the officers in it were wealthy slave owners. Uh, they just did not want to be sent out of state. Uh, they wanted to basically act like a militia force. And uh, for political reasons, the Confederacy allowed that to be there. Uh, a lot of folks that were in the infantry uh, deserted and joined uh, that brigade there. It's called Roddy's Brigade. And uh, so a lot of people, quote, served uh, in, the, in the Confederacy and thereby avoided conscription and being sent off to a meat grinder in Virginia or some other location. Uh, but they really weren't doing that much all the time. Uh, let, let me just say this, too, though. There were a tremendous number of people that 
uh, fought very bravely in the war, on both sides, of course, uh, but certainly from Alabama. A lot of the folks that gave their lives for the cause. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't want to discount those people's contributions to what they felt was right. Uh, I just kind of disagree that that was the course that should have been taken. But I think that, uh, you know, you, you, you really didn't have a division over economics. It was really a division over how best to retain slavery and avoid war. Uh, the secession so, here in Alabama, led by William Yancey, uh, told everybody mm-hmm. there wasn't going to be a war, uh, that they would be able to use a handkerchief to blot up all the blood, a single handkerchief to blot up all the blood that might be shed uh, following secession. Uh, and, you know, who knows? Uh, but, you know, the attack on Fort Sumter forced everyone's hand. And uh, you'll see the the passage in the book about what that was really all about and why it occurred when it did. And uh, so... Well, I thought it was fascinating to the way you described the politics of the vote for secession or the, the convention that's called and the, the political maneuvering around it. There, there was no direct vote of the people on that issue. Uh, but you point out lawyers, uh, politicians are involved. The the maneuvers that lawyers and politicians engage in uh, are in, involved on both sides, pro and anti-secession. And the result is that it's very much a political decision made by political means, but it never does come to a direct vote of the whole uh, voting body of the state. It doesn't, and the secessionists would never have allowed that. Uh, there was a vote in the secession convention uh, that... Uh, you know, basically, uh, the, the, those who were opposed to secession wanted the uh, ordinance of secession to be approved by the people or rejected. And the secessionists voted 53 to 46, very close vote, not to allow this. And that upset a lot of people uh, around the state. And, you know, as, as you'll read in there, there was a political movement to run a candidate that being Robert Jemison from here in Tuscaloosa, uh, for the office of governor in the August 1861 state election. And, uh, you know, before that, that campaign really got much underway, uh, there were plans were made for simultaneous attacks on Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor and Fort Pickens in Pensacola Harbor. Of course, Sumter was attacked on April 12th in the, the attack on Fort Pickens had to be aborted when a reporter leaked the news of it prematurely. So, uh, but, you know, that at, at that point, people are wondering, well, what's going to happen? Is Lincoln, who has called up troops, is he going to come down and try to end slavery and, and that sort of thing? And certainly the press in Alabama tried very hard to portray uh, what Lincoln was going to do uh, in, in, the, in the most possible negative way, uh, even though Lincoln is, is telling everyone that, you know, he's not going to bother uh, slavery where it is, uh, he is, uh, you know, that, those words never make it to Alabama. Uh, the press is pretty well bought up by the secessionists, and 
So, you know, once that occurs, uh, the, the war is on. And, you know, the book includes, of course, discussions about battles like Shiloh and some of the others that were significant to Alabama. Uh, you know, the, the Western theater, to me, is where the, the war, war would have been won or lost. It was lost uh, in the West. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so the rest is, quote, history. No, I, I would not argue with you about that at all, that the, uh, that the, uh, the war is won and lost in the West. Uh, let me ask you, you mentioned being in Tuscaloosa. You, the University of Alabama plays an interesting role in the, the book, uh, in, in the war, in a way that uh, you don't see as much, at least in some of the other southern states, uh, perhaps as directly. Could you talk a little bit about the, uh, the role of the university in the war? Sure, sure. Uh, you know, uh, the, the universities in, in several of the states shut down. Uh, the University of Alabama didn't. About a year before the war started, the legislature basically militarized the university, made it kind of like the West Point of Alabama, and uh, the the students there were made cadets, and they were trained in military procedures and, and tactics and theory and that sort of thing, and uh, and a lot of the, the students that graduated from there uh, became, uh, you know, officers in the, in the Confederate military. Uh, a lot of them did. And uh, the university just kept plugging along in that respect. Uh, concerns arose in 1863 when um, they a college in North Alabama that also was a military school was burned in one of the one of the major raids that came through North Alabama uh, during the first half of that year and uh, you know the the folks down here at the university uh, there's a famous letter from the president of the university to the governor where he says uh, that, you know, if, if the Yankees come here, we know that they will not leave one stone on top of the other. In other words, they knew as early as that year that there was going to be destruction of the university. But nonetheless, the university continued in its role to produce uh, fighting men. Um, a lot of the students here... Uh, you know, left the university prematurely and joined up, much to the chagrin of the, the uh, administration out here and much to the chagrin of their uh, parent, many of their parents. A lot of the parents put their kids here because for a period of time, those cadets were exempt from conscription. And so, you know, just like during the Vietnam War, people were trying to save their, their sons by placing them in the university and hoping that they would avoid being in harm's way. Some of those students uh, got caught up in the furor of everything and, and left anyway, joined up, and, and uh, you know, it caused a major stink uh, when they did this, but really there was nothing that anybody could do about it. Um, and the university, of course, little off... 
Go ahead. Just a little off the what's in the book directly, but you you attended University of Alabama roughly the time I was at Michigan. Uh, you both did undergrad and law school at those places. In the seventies, was was there any consciousness on campus of the the school civil war role? Uh, is is that something that uh, is memorialized or that people know about generally? Uh, well, uh, in the you talking about in the seventies? I don't think anybody. From your gave, own experience, yeah, I don't think people in the seventies at the University of Alabama gave one rip about the Civil War. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. despite all of the reminders of it all, all over the campus as, as it existed at that time. You know, there was a a, uh, a building that was renamed very recently, but was uh, was named for a Confederate general, uh, John Tyler Morgan. Uh, the, the library, uh, uh, you know, is Gorgas Library. That's It's named for the man's wife, but it was actually uh, General Gorgas who was in charge of the ordinance department. Uh, there, were, there were portraits of a lot of these Confederate figures uh, who were Alabamians, uh, you know, around campus. Again, as you probably recall from your time of the 70s, you know, the early part of the 70s, it was Vietnam War, and, you know, there was a division within the student body about the war and the righteousness of the war. Uh, people really were focused on that. That was also the period of halter tops. Uh, so guys were more interested in the gals and probably vice versa. And looking at the Civil War, um, you know, and I, I think probably that's the same way it is out there now. Uh, is is most of the people at the University of Alabama uh, really are very modern and progressive and don't really, you know, focus on the past at all. Uh, and to a large degree, they try to avoid it. Um, you know, there is one fraternity on it's campus. It's interesting. To- Go ahead. It's interesting to see how campuses recall this. Uh, my, one of my daughters graduated from Bowdoin College, where Joshua Chamberlain is uh, well known, and they know who he is. But as you said, it's not the first thing on their minds. Um, well, we'll talk more about this. We're going to take another short break. Come back in just a moment. Talk more with Christopher Lyle McElwain, Sr., author of Civil War, Alabama. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Christopher Lyle McElwain, Sr., author of Civil War Alabama, a first book in over a century to look specifically at the war in that Confederate state. We talked in the first couple segments a little bit about secession, about who participated in the war effort and uh, the divisions within the state. Chris, what about the war actually coming to Alabama? It's not like uh, Tennessee or Virginia where dozens of battles end up being fought uh, what kind of military action takes place or th- that you found most significant? Well, it, it, in, uh, in 1862, at the time that, uh, uh, of Shallow, uh, the Union troops from Nashville came in and, and occupied Huntsville in North Alabama, really with you know, very little opposition, uh, and, and basically took control of North Alabama. The... The real fighting occurred in the aftermath of that, where uh, the the state uh, encouraged uh, guerrilla fighting up there. A lot of people, pro Confederates, went up there and and attacked uh, the Union forces up there. You know, in a hit and run fashion, it was pretty bloody uh, war going on up there. It's not the fixed battles that you think of when you think of, of uh, Virginia, but uh, they were nonetheless very bloody and very costly. Uh, you know, after that point, uh, the, uh, of course, when, when uh, the, the Union forces left the state briefly uh, to chase General Bragg up into Kentucky, um, the uh, there was kind of a void left. That's when Roddy's brigade formed, and then at, at the turn of the year in '63 is when you have a tremendous number of raids coming, Union raids coming from Corinth, and you have several battles that take place up there. Not giant battles, but they're nonetheless bloody encounters. Uh, that's the time, and you may have heard of this where uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest comes into the state and chases down a, a Yankee brigade that was trying to move across the state to attack a railroad in Georgia. He ran them down and, 
captured them all. Um, so, you know, but, but again, there's not a lot of giant battles going on really until sort of the end, and these are kind of quick battles. Uh, I've got a, a, a forthcoming book that is, is titled uh, From Civil War to an Uncivil Peace. It really goes into great detail about, you know, what happened during that year, the last five months of the war, and then the rest of that year, and why presidential construction went bad. But, um, you know, Selma is taken, uh, the industrial capacity there is destroyed, um, you know, the, the industrial capacity in Jefferson County, where a lot of the mineral uh, minerals like coal and iron and that sort of thing were, uh, that was destroyed. And then at the same time in South Alabama, there's an invasion from Pensacola, Florida, up into South Alabama, and then uh, that force moves over to um, team up with uh, General Canby to take the forts that were protecting the eastern shore of Mobile Bay and uh, those were taken. Uh, a lot of black flag uh, fighting took place during that. And then um, the, those troops move out. Mobile is abandoned. And uh, there's, a, uh, you know, the Yankees march into Mobile. So, uh, but and, and, and that happens at the end of the war, the, the capture of Mobile and Selma. And up to that, you've, you've just got these raid, these incursions, you know, Dodge and Strait and Grierson right. and Rousseau, and all, all these Union generals move into the state, and they either choose to move out or, or Nathan Bedford Forrest captures them. Uh, but it, it, it creates an interesting view because you have, it's in contrast to Tennessee and Virginia, which are the home of uh, fighting or Mississippi. Even a state like North Carolina, you've got uh, the, the eastern shore occupied, uh, the Atlantic coastline occupied from early 1862. Atlanta is, is not Alabama is, is screened from the war, so the home front you know feels the effects of these incursions. But uh, you cite a lot of diaries, a lot of letters of what people are feeling during the war, and it it does seem like their their confidence wanes. As, as the Union is able to make these incursions? Well, very much so. And, and the only reason that uh, Alabama was not invaded earlier, and I'm talking about invaded and taken, uh, Selma mm-hmm. and Montgomery, uh, was the, the, the fact that, uh, you know, Hood's forces were up there in Tennessee, uh, and then, you know, they're trying to get Atlanta first, Atlanta is easier to get to than, than Montgomery and Selma were, and those were kind of the the, uh, the the key targets in Alabama because they supplied the military with the wherewithal to fight the war. But you know what you need to keep in mind is is North Alabama, you know, around the Tennessee River is pretty flat, but you go just south mm-hmm. of that and you get into some mountains. And there's not a lot of food. There's not a lot of people uh, in those mountains. And so trying to take a force through there is going to be very difficult. Plus, you've got Nathan Bedford Forrest over in North Mississippi who, if he learns that there's a force coming down from 
you know, North Alabama uh, toward uh, Selma or Montgomery, he's going to come in and attack their flanks. And uh, so, and that was going to be problematic. Nobody knew how many troops he had, uh, so it, there was a fear factor involved in that. Whereas, and there was no no railroad like there was from Chattanooga to Atlanta. So, you know, going to Ch- from Chattanooga, you can uh, you have a, a, a great supply line as long as you can keep the railroad running. There is no north south railroad in the state of Alabama during that period. Uh, there was one so over when, in Mississippi, when, but not in Alabama. When when Sherman's in Atlanta, then and he decides to march to the sea, you point out Halleck and others. There was some sentiment that he should have gone southwest toward Montgomery and Selma rather than southeast to Savannah, which would have certainly changed the complexion of the war if his his great march had been in that direction. One thing that I found very interesting in the book, especially in the, the later chapters, was the continuous movement for a separate peace, for the idea of Alabama acting independent of the rest of the Confederacy to negotiate. You suggest there was a lot of political conflict within the state between those who wanted to do this and, and those who didn't. So I, I'm curious about that, especially the fact that those who did want to negotiate and pull out of the war early were thought that that was the best bet to keep slavery alive. Is, is that was, was that how they saw it? Absolutely, how they saw it. I mean, their impression before the uh, 1864 election was that if McClellan won, then the war could end with slavery. And by that time, I mean, this is again after Gettysburg, after Vicksburg, after, uh, you know, Atlanta has fallen, uh, you know, Mobile, Mobile Bay has fallen. I mean, it, the writing's not just on the wall, it's as big as the wall. And so uh, these folks believe that, you know, there should be an effort made by the Confederacy to cut a deal uh, that would preserve slavery. And there's evidence that, uh, that Lincoln might have strongly considered that even after the 13th Amendment was adopted. Uh, that's a whole other story for a whole other day, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, the political leadership was pretty, pretty poor uh, during that period. Uh, you know, you get up to the, the peace talks, uh, you know, where Lincoln is there with Seward and the Confederate commissioners, and basically Davis is hamstrung the Confederate commissioners by saying, you know, he'll only agree to uh, independence. That's not a realistic position at that point. Uh, that ain't going to happen. Um, and then no, I, after- I'm not sure. I, Go ahead. I would push back on whether Lincoln would have countenanced any steps backward on slavery, but he did supposedly say if Davis wants to know what I would say about uh, reunion without anything about slavery, let him try me. Uh, but as you say, Davis never tried him. But you've got oh. these, uh, uh, the, the, but the result was, you, you argue that, that Confederate, pro-Confederates in Alabama are actually arguing in favor of Lincoln's re-election because they, they, they fear a compromise. Exactly, exactly. Uh, they, had, they had originally supported McClellan and then when McClellan comes out with his letter following the Democratic Convention there in 1864 saying that, you know, the uh, 
reunion is his goal, uh, then they drop him like a hot potato and start uh, encouraging uh, people to believe that Lincoln is the best way to go because otherwise there's, there will be a compromise. And uh, that, that really becomes the key thing going into the end of the war. And the next book really talks about Lincoln and his, his positions, among other things. But, uh, you know, there was an effort to approach the governor, Thomas Hill Watts, to uh, try to cut a deal on a separate piece. He basically ignores them angrily, uh, and so basically the, the the state is a sitting duck. Uh, the remnant of Hood's armies is over trying to chase Sherman. All they've got is Roddy's brigade and and uh, you know Nathan Bedford Forrest in North Alabama. That's not enough to stop fourteen thousand soldiers under General Wilson. So the game's up at that point. The, the last card in the deck uh, you talk about, we just got a couple minutes left, is the idea of employing slaves as soldiers. And you suggest there was some conversation about this in Alabama as well as in Virginia. Uh, what came of that? Well, I, most, of the, most of the people were not favorable to that. Uh, Non-slave owners were not favorable to it. The slave owners were, really weren't going to allow their slaves. You know the law that was adopted required the consent of the slave owner to allow the slave to fight. They couldn't, in essence, be conscripted to fight, and it just didn't go anywhere. Uh, it was just not something that people wanted to see a bunch of slaves walking around with guns uh, because that went back to this fear issue that basically got the whole thing started. So uh, it was just not, there was not a tremendous amount of support for it, although there were some key figures around the South that certainly were supportive of it. So your next book, you say, looks at the, uh, the end of the war and the post-war era. Uh, what, how, is, how is that going? What's, what's your timeline for that project? It's, uh, it'll come out next year from the University of Alabama Press. Uh, uh, the copy editors are going over it right now, and uh, I think it, it, just like this book, it's got what I think are some, some fairly new uh, analyses of, of what happened during that period and what people were willing to do and not willing to do during that period. And basically the, the conclusion is, is a lot of what happened to Alabama in 1865 was a self-inflicted wound. Uh, they... they Complained about the federal government for years, but there was a there was a shot there in 1865 at several points where their interests could have been served if they had just done things with with moderation, and uh, they just didn't do it. The political leadership was just too poor to get the job done. Well, that. that uh uh, an echo that, that uh, is prescient, perhaps, for, for in, in the view of many people on, on all sides of the spectrum today. Uh, the book is, uh, the title of the book, Civil War Alabama, published by University of Alabama Press. Uh, the author, Christopher Lyle McElwain, has been our guest tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. It really is an interesting, uh, very well-researched look at 
what happens within a particular Confederate state looks beneath the surface of, of uniformity that the Lost Cause myth is portrayed so often and, and shows you what's going on in detail. Uh, definitely uh, worth a look, Civil War Alabama, and uh, it, it, a, a fitting end to our 2015-2016 season. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for joining us on the show tonight. Jerry, thanks for having me. Have a great summer. And Thank you, and the same to all listeners. Have a great summer, and thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. It's staff and management.